This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ or sign up for our email list to stay up to date on everything we have going on. And to get the most involved, join our free Mighty Networks community to get connected with others living this restorative justice life all over the world. As far as this podcast goes, make sure you're subscribed, leave a rating and review, and share with a friend to help us further amplify this work. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. In his middle age, 57, uh, Jewish, those are probably the main demographic items. Mm. Items, yeah. Who are you? Wow, yeah. Um, there's a this is this is cheating, but there's uh, if you haven't seen the movie The Last Wave, which came out in the 1970s, there is a scene, David, where this sequence is asked and it's it has very significant consequences for the movie um so you should check that out but um that's where it gets kind of existential and where i quickly go i don't know i'm just a guy trying to get by in a really strange world right now mm-hmm. i'm gonna throw one more at you who uh, are you i think i'm a person who's pretty happy to be on the show today to talk with you oh my goodness so good to have yet another david here on this restorative justice life we had david usum about a month in change ago um and he's doing great work in oakland and he shared so much of his story and how um you know we can think like jazz musicians to think about the way that we do restorative justice. So if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely go back um, and check out that conversation with another beloved uh, person. Uh, But so excited to have you here. Um, David's strongly representing here on these airwaves. Um, It's always good to check in uh, to the extent that you want to answer the question right now. How are you? Those are all California Davids. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, the San Francisco Gay Parade used to have a a float dedicated to just David. Oh, wow. (laughs) Maybe you can recruit. (laughs) I I should, right? It's like in my birth year, it was like the fourth most common name. So there have to be many more of us doing this work. (laughs) Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, like David Carp and like most of the people who, sorry, like David Yusum and most of the people uh, who are on this podcast, you know, you are doing restorative justice work professionally and you have been for quite some time. But I imagine you were doing work similar to this even before you knew the words restorative justice. So, in your own words, how did this journey get started for you? Uh, you know, I, that's interesting. I, um, I was a peace and conflict studies major in college, uh, and I discovered that major, which was brand new at Berkeley, when I was a student at Tufts University, but I was in California visiting my brothers, and, uh, and I discovered this major, and it was, you know, a light bulb went on. 
for me. And, uh, and I realized that that's what I really wanted to do. And I transferred and joined this program. And I think at the time, there was probably just as much conflict in the program as there was peace. Mm. Uh, and uh, just figuring out how, um, how to resolve conflict was pretty central to my framing of things. I think my origins are really with Gandhi and nonviolence. That's what I was most interested in studying and implementing at the time. And then I, I went to graduate school uh, to be a sociologist because I, you know, I wanted to solve problems, social problems. So I, that's, that's where I got my start. That, that's the larger frame. Well, I mean, all before restorative justice was a term. Sure. But where did you even get introduced to like Gandhi and nonviolence, right? Because before like, oh, peace and conflict studies, like you had to have a framing of like, oh, this is something important that I want to do in my life. Where did that um, come in for you? Uh, when I, I, I um, went to college in the early 1980s, and that was uh, one of those moments with really heightened nuclear war tensions and, um, you know, a nuclear freeze movement. So I was an activist and, um, and you know, a good protest. And there would be a lot of debate uh, about whether or not nonviolence was the approach to take. And that was really just the legacy of Gandhi and the King or whether, you know, more drastic measures were needed, uh, you know, to wake people up. So I think that debate was uh, very front and center at least in community at the time. Yeah. How, I mean, you ended up and you have been, um, more towards, you know, the, the nonviolence, right. Um, what helped you like resonate with that framing, right? Because, you know, I've, Des Moines, who is uh, a part of the Amplifier team is right now going through EMU's, uh, Eastern Mennonite University's, uh, conflict transformation um master's degree program and you know as much as their orientation is towards abolition restorative justice transformative justice all these things on many levels and and i'm thinking about like uh a episode that we did with uh fabrice fabrice uh guerrier um who's haitian right and like the the haitian revolution is what got people their independence like violence has um led to some forms of liberation violence has led to some forms of power transfer and uh, struggle. Why is the nonviolence um, methods and practices something that like really resonated with you? Yeah. I don't know if it's as simple as, you know, the, um, you know, means have to align with the ends. Sure. Uh, in some way, or um, if it was reading, if you read Gandhi or if you read Martin Luther King, you know, they, the moral case that they make is so compelling. It's hard to go back from that, mm -hmm. you know, from this concept of like, you know, satyagraha, like truth force, like, you, you know. Can you break that down for folks who, folks, myself included, have not done that specific reading? I, um, like the, I think the general idea is you're appealing to someone's conscience in a deep and profound way by being so present 
with the truth of the situation that they can't stand their own hypocrisy. So if they're, you know, beating you down in the name of civilization, then they can't stand that uh, contradiction between the violence and the idea of, you know, civility or civilization. Um, and so it's, it, it ultimately becomes overwhelmingly powerful, even more powerful than violence when you don't have the same level of, you know, violent means available to you. Um, yeah. I think it just, just that kind of moral truth and moral goodness. Uh, who wouldn't want that, you know, to aspire to that? I definitely think there's like the intellectual moral, like, oh yes, this is the way that we can be. But in the face of so much oppression and repeated harm from people who seemingly don't have a conscience and like we can talk about, you know, how we don't believe that as restorative justice practitioners, people definitely, like, I can definitely see where folks um, think violence is the answer for the, for the moment. Right. Um, non tactics of nonviolence. Um, I'm going to say like, aren't necessarily what every situation calls for, especially like if, and, and I think it like depends on like what your, your values are, like what your, what your absolute values are in the, in the world that we live in right now. Um, I can see how it's hard for folks to like, think that like those ways are the ways to go. I'm also reading, revisiting. Um, and like, I'm putting this out into the universe as like a potential podcast guest. Um, Steven Beyer, he talks about, uh, and many others talk about like the myth of redemptive violence. Um, he, this is in his book, talking stick and like, the myth of redemptive violence has been so ingrained in so many of us. Um, I would say all of us, like, but it's in our, in our media, it's in the stories that we consume and people wanting that public acknowledgement, but also like justification of like, yeah, this person did this thing. Um, and this is what they get. Um, even if the thing that they get is more harm perpetuating this cycle, uh, people see that as justice. Um, was it just like the introduction through reading that like made that connect for you? Or was there something else that happened in your life? They're like, Oh, you know, violence is not the answer. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, I, I, I think I was being honest when I'm saying like, I'm just trying to survive in a, sure. a really messed up world. So I think all I can do is try to live in the way that I see as having the most integrity in the world. And I'll try to do that for as long as I can. And that's the classic challenge, right? They're like, sure. well, you be against the death penalty until you know your family member is murdered, and then you'll be for the death penalty. Um, so maybe, you know, like maybe when I'm confronted directly head on, um, I'll change my tune. Uh, but for the moment, um, you know, I think I want to advocate for, you know, a life worth living. Uh, but I think that maybe the main thing here, and this really is a, as a sociologist talking, is that we are puzzling through individual choices, mm -hmm. my own moral commitments versus collective choices. And so Gandhi couldn't do his thing by himself for a month. Yeah. He couldn't do his thing by himself. He he had to have enough 
people, a critical mass of people buy into that model for it to be successful. Um, and you can argue about how successful it was or uh, you know, historically analyze it. Uh, but if we're going to see systemic change, then we have to operate systemically, meaning collectively. And, uh, uh, you know, how we get there is the game, right? How do we convince enough people? How do we engage enough people? I think at minimum, I like to be engaged in the restorative justice community because it's like it's it feeds my soul in a good way mm -hmm. in ways that maybe other, you know, movement politics uh, wouldn't because of the, the stress or the anger or um, the, uh, the fear that would just, you know, kind of ruin me from, in, you know, in the inside. And so if I can feel uplifted by the work and by the people around me and more of us can feel that way, maybe we'd have some. Yeah. The restorative justice community um, uh, has definitely been a, a continued source of inspiration and like the people who I've been introduced to through this work, um, you know, and continue to be introduced to you through this podcast and all, all of this like are definitely inspirations and reminders of the way that this work can be life-giving this way of being can be life-giving where were you introduced to the words the framework and what clicked for you i had just finished my dissertation which was not about restorative justice it was about moral decision making uh in response to environmental issues and um i ended up at a uh in, in a postdoc at George Washington University in a policy center. And the director of the center, a, a pretty well-known sociologist, uh, Amitai Etzioni, said to me something that I was not expecting when I first arrived. And he said, like, what do you want to do? And I was like, what are you talking about? I just spent you know years working on this dissertation. I, I have to keep doing that, whatever that is. And he's like, no, you don't. You can, you're, that's done. You can pick something new. So I, um, I, I was given some space to think about what was, uh, what felt right and important to me. And in those moments, when I was pondering, I went to a conference um, organized by um, NIJ, the National Institute of Justice, and uh, two guys from the Vermont Department of Corrections, Jim Spinelli and John Perry presented about their brand new statewide restorative justice program. And I hadn't heard of anything like it. And I was mesmerized. Uh, and then uh, a year later, I got a job as an assistant professor at Skidmore College, which is in upstate New York, but an hour from Vermont, and uh, realized I could call those guys and say, I loved your presentation and I'm a new professor and I need to do research and publish things. So, you, you know, do you need any help? Can I do something? And, uh, and they were, they welcomed it uh, and said, we, we started this thing. We've got to evaluate it. In fact, it's a statewide program and we really have no idea like what's going on on the ground. Um, so I was able to spend a few years working closely with them and I would say even at that time, which was like 1997, 
they haven't really figured out the phrase restorative justice yet. Mm. They have invented their own term for this, uh, which is called uh, reparative probation. And other people then said to them, wow, what a great restorative justice program you've created. And they're like, thank you. Uh, you know, we didn't know. Uh, and then they fully embraced it. So that's that program, because of its early start, got a lot of attention nationally, even internationally. People were coming to Vermont to visit and see what they were doing, how their process worked. And then they started to compare it with what was happening in Australia uh, with conferencing um, that had already migrated over to England and a couple places in the U.S. And so it was a, I think it was a, a pretty cool time for innovation. Uh, and uh, it was clear that the motivation for Vermont was um, financial, basically. Like they were, this was knee deep into the mass incarceration era. And judges were sending more and more people uh, to, to prison and Vermont didn't have enough space and they had mm. another jail um, or they had to do something different. And they really just didn't want to, uh, you know, do, do more prison. Um, and these guys uh, like John Perry, you know, were really thinking about what, what could we do differently? And their inspiration didn't come from, you know, reading about indigenous justice practices. Uh, in fact, it was much more rooted, but it really comes from Vermont's um, civic democracy tradition of engaging the community at the town level in mm. decisions about what should happen in the community. And so they were really inspired by this, what was called like a Shire model, you know, a little bit Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> But they they are shires in Vermont, um, and uh, and that um, that kind of localism was meaningful, and that they would go to communities and say, people from your community are going to be sentenced to jail. What if we put those decisions in your hands instead of in judges' hands? would you do the same thing or something different? And overwhelmingly, as they were coming up with, you know, kind of grassroots or homegrown restorative solutions that would, that fully recognized that um, putting someone in jail was not going to uh, change them in a way so that when they got back to the community, they were going to be in a better place. Like they really recognized that they wanted their, their neighbors to be better off at the end of whatever process they designed. And so it was rehabilitative and focused, but also attentive to addressing the harms caused to, you know, particular crime victims and, and the community and involving uh, the community in that process. So it, it was very eye-opening for me. And I, at the same time, I got, I got, connected to Mark Umbright and Gordon Baysmore, who were professors who were running a federal juvenile justice, restorative justice project called BARGE, or the Balanced and Restorative Justice Project. And um, they taught me all about what was happening nationally uh, at that time uh, with restorative justice around rethinking the juvenile justice system. So 
um, that's that's how I that's how I figured out what was going on. Yeah, I want to go back uh, to something you said a couple minutes ago. You know, this framework of reparative probation. What about that as a sociologist was mesmerizing for you? It's a great question. So in uh, in sociology, particularly within criminology, there's been a long-standing recognition that there are two ways to um, promote appropriate behavior, non-criminal behavior, uh, and the, the distinction is between formal social control and informal social control. And formal is, you know, police, courts, prisons, and it's external, and it's it's very costly. And the research was pretty clear that it doesn't work that well. And that's much, much more influential than formal social control is informal social control. And that means um, the influence that friends, family, teachers, neighbors have on um, engaging with someone in a way that uh, holds them accountable. And it's, it's less through punishment and more through um, belonging. Fundamentally belonging, social belonging. Mm -hmm. Like we approve or disapprove of your behavior. If we disapprove, your the status that you have in our community is in jeopardy. You may not be able to continue to belong to our community. You might be exiled in some way from our community. And then, like in traditional um, indigenous communities, this is very real. Like exile was. Um, a, a terrifying prospect, right? Like life and death in terms of survival when you depend on the you know, group system, um, uh, being able to cooperate and work with the system, with the community was essential. And, and if you couldn't cooperate, you had no place in that community. So there's just a lot of research about how informal social control matters. And it was uh, also connected to Vermont a guy in the social work program, Gail Burford, uh, uh, who, um, along with Joan Pennell, uh, were studying family group conferencing and in New Zealand and brought it to um, Canada. And this was around child welfare. And mm. their model was very clearly embedded in this informal social control model. The original family group uh, conferencing model as it got translated from the Maori was um, the, 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 the welfare system and the court system would be represented in those decisions initially. They would meet with the family, let's say it's around uh, child abuse or domestic violence, and they're making decisions about custody arrangements. And, uh, and so they they would be presenting to the family about the services that might be available, like maybe uh, alcohol, substance abuse treatment available, but also the legal consequences of violating restraining orders or whatever there might be. So uh, carrots and sticks were, you know, kind of there, but um, they would leave. The, the, this, the decision making group was the family. So they would sort of present, like, here's the deal. Here's all what, here are all the things that might happen. Your service is available, but come up with your own plan. And then they would leave. And for hours, the, 
family or the extended family would sit in circle and work up a plan that was organized around informal social control. So in other words, you know, dad would go move in with the uncle for three months and he would see the children only when grandma was there and they made sure that he wasn't drinking. Um, and that, you know, those kinds of arrangements really can only be monitored and enacted by the family. Like a probation officer isn't going to have the time or wherewithal to go. Is it 8 p.m. on Thursday? That's the visiting time. Or, mm-hmm. you know, is grandma home? You know, like all of these things that have to happen in a tight-knit uh, family unit. So that 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 became part of the equation, recognition that these informal systems are very powerful. And there was a lot, particularly at that time, a focus on the role of shame and exclusion in restorative processes, like helping someone understand the impact, the negative impact that they're having on their family or on crime victims or whomever um, should elicit a level of shame and embarrassment and guilt and hurt and remorse. And that becomes a motivation for change, but it's only a motivation for change if there's a clear pathway provided. Like, here's how you can take responsibility for this. We have a plan that's workable. We'll support you in um, enacting that plan. And that shame gets transformed, right, ultimately into pride and a sense of place and a, a sense of um, a removal of that, that stigma, you know, and shame. Uh, and so one regains their place in the community. Uh, so that, I think that emotion work was really central early on. Uh, and that's really what the informal social control is all about. Yeah. What that assumes is that there is a relationship that's valued in the first place, right? And so when we're talking about families, that definitely translates pretty well. When we talk about um, communities where there are established strong relationships that the person who has caused harm value, that works really well. You know, you and I both are in this place where, you know, restorative justice has been and frameworks around restorative justice have been used to repair so much harm. And there is such a need to make sure that there are those uh, relationships that are valued in the first place when we when we scale it up. We're going to revisit those ideas uh, in just a second. But this idea of, um, oh, dang, the phrasing that you used, like informal, what was the, informal social control, right? Um, th- those are so powerful. And like, um, whether or not shame um like guilt and shame like are helpful for any given situation it kind of goes back to uh what you're talking about um with um gandhian nonviolence or kingian nonviolence when you're confronted with like the harm that you're causing and is this in alignment with like how you want to be in the world that can be that can be really effective there's also ways where shaming can not be very effective (laughs) but um when you're calling people in to be in alignment with their values or you know, the way that they want to be in the world could be so helpful. When you, when you first shared the story of this happening in Vermont um, and 
um, when I think of Vermont and when I think of the demographics of Vermont, <laughs> um, I think about um, a pretty homogeneous white um, community group. It reminds me of a conversation that we had with Tonya Covington about the way that um, every sort of process played out in a specific neighborhood in New Mexico where, you know, these um, white teenagers, um, you know, caused a lot of havoc and destruction in a neighborhood. And people were like, no, we don't want these kids to like have their lives ruined. Um, we want to figure out a way for them to repair. And the community members had access to their grades, right? For the next, however many years, um, they were invited to their graduations and, and all that kind of thing. It was like a really beautiful thing that happened. And I'm so curious, like if the dynamics of that situation would have been different if the kids weren't white, right? Um, I'm curious, like if the demo, the, the way that that program manifested would have been different um, if Vermont was not such a homogeneous place, whether people would be, whether the ethic of like community and uh, we take care of ourselves, uh, we take care of each other would have been the same in a more uh, diverse, um, in a diverse place. I mean, we can't like go back and project, but yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, well, it just raises the challenge, you know, can, can there be enough, what you're talking about fundamentally is trust, right? Mm -hmm. That we're using race as a proxy for trust. Like, if uh, one white Vermonter sees another white Vermonter in their community, are they going to be more trusting than if they see a non-white Vermonter, right? And if they're pretty much all white, they're going to be like, okay, we can all work together. Um, so can you uh, create that level of trust in a more heterogeneous community uh, is, the, you know, that's the challenge of our country, right? Like there are other mm -hmm. countries that are very homogeneous and they really rely on that um, for their sense of unity and identity. And um, in this country tries, tries not to do that, or at least some portion of our country aspires to that. Uh, and another portion of the country you know, wants that simple tool of, you know, like white pride or something. So, but, but if, you know, if it's an all Latinx community or, you know, like a, an all black community, you get similar patterns of trust, right? Mm -hmm. Like I get you, I see you, I get you, um, you know, and so I, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt or I want to see you succeed. Um, uh, you know, so race matters, definitely. Class matters, too. You know, Vermont is a pretty poor state. Like, they just, you know, they don't have a lot. There's not a lot of money in the state of Vermont. So class dynamics factor in all of these. So even if there can be trust through whiteness, you know, there's often distrust through class uh, divides. And, um, and so there are always going to be ways in which we to create in groups and out groups, and uh, and I think one of the you know the like the basic methodological strategies of restorative justice is to create situations that help break down some of those in group out group divisions and help people see each other more more authentically. The shame thing, you know, coming back to that is always about um, separating the act from the person. Mm -hmm. Did a really terrible thing. But we're going to declare out loud, we don't think you are a terrible person. That is, um, we think you're redeemable, 
and that you can do things that will win back, uh, you know, your, our trust in you. But our, you know, like trust is gone right now. Like you've done things that make us really unhappy. And, um, uh, but it's not permanent, right? Because we're not seeing it as a fundamental flaw in your character or a flaw in your tribe. Um, we're seeing this as, uh, you know, a person who's either made a mistake or done things like very intentionally, but trapped within a set of circumstances that are pretty uh, compelling uh, and, or mitigating. And, uh, and then we can, we can try to change those conditions. Yeah. I'm curious how like you took all of this observation, this research that you were doing as a sociologist and, you know, brought that into practice in your context of Skidmore, right? For those that knew the name David Karp before you clicked onto this podcast, you probably know of his work within the realm of restorative justice for colleges and universities. He wrote the little book on it, right? Um, how did you translate those ideas that you had been observing, you'd been researching into the context that you were at? That, um, you know, it happened almost right away uh, because it was 1998 that I started at Skidmore and, you know, knocked on corrections door in Vermont. Uh, and uh, one of the first projects that I did, there was a quantitative like evaluation data, uh, but there was also a, a qualitative project that I did, which was super fun. And I I spent about six months driving around Vermont with Skidmore students and a you know video camera, and we were recording um, these uh, restorative meetings, these mm. community record board meetings, and trying to puzzle out like what was inside the black box. Like corrections had set up this program, but they knew they were bringing the community victims, these probationers, together. Uh, but they didn't really know, they had like parameters, like here's what we'd like you to try to do, but they didn't know how it would unfold. So we spent time just uh, dissecting uh, in terms of what was what were the common themes? What do they talk about? What are they, where are the glitches? You know, what happens when it goes off the rails? Um, so I had a collection of videos and in 1999, Skidmore's students were in a bit of an uproar about our student conduct process, mm. which they found to be overly punitive. And uh, one one good way to know if people like or dislike a process is how many appeals are filed. And if there's an appeal in every case, it means that people are unhappy with the outcome every time. Uh, and so there were a lot of appeals. And I was invited to be on a committee with students and uh, administrators and uh, faculty to rethink our disciplinary system. And I, I knew nothing about um, campus conduct administration. You know, I, I didn't have any particular interest in campus-based restorative justice. Uh, but that was the charge. And I basically turned to the committee and said, do you, you all want to watch some of these videotapes I have? Because it's a kind of similar process to what we're talking about here. And we basically just adopted the Vermont model mm. for student 
misconduct on campus. And it's that started in, in the year 2000. And then I was actually back in Vermont for a conference and I was presenting at this conference, uh, like some video clips, some bloopers, some, you know, like best of clips from uh, record boards. And they had also invited this guy, Tom Molina, uh, to, to be a presenter. And we ended up at the same lunch table. And he told me that um, he had just trained uh, University of Colorado Boulder in restorative practices and that they had launched a uh, restorative program in 1999. So it's just now 2001 or two. Uh, so we were aware that Skidmore and Boulder were the, the only two programs at that time doing anything with restorative justice. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I started to learn more about what they were doing and how it was different. And, um, uh, and then we started working together. We published a book back in 2004 that was an ed edited volume sharing stories from different campuses doing uh, restorative justice and raising issues around, um, you know, how could it go further other than like a simple, this kid pulled the fire alarm um, to, you know, uh, uh, bias incidents that they were simply called hate crimes back then, um, you know, more serious offenses. And, um, and then we just started uh, educating other campuses. It just kind of grew from there. So I, I just got increasingly interested uh, in um, its applications on campus. And I became a dean uh, for some years at Skidmore where I was in a position where I could do more of it on the ground and not just talk about it and write about it. Uh, and that was really helpful. So uh, now I'm just aware of so many programs across the country, which is, uh, is that's pretty cool. Yeah. So quickly wanting to shout out restorative justice on college campuses, colon, promoting student growth and responsibilities and reawakening the spirit of campus community, 2004 book, correct? Yes. That's and right. then, and then the little book of restorative justice on college campuses is the one that has been more college and universities, right? Is the one that has been uh, more widely circulated. So, if folks want to, you know, learn more about the the details of like the things that you're researching, just plugging your books really quick. Um, but when you, as you started in that process of implementing these this model of conferencing for these, for these incidents of whether they were bias, um, students pulling fire alarms, more serious things. Um, how did that go? How, you know, you went from a process where people were appealing left and right. What was the transformation that took place? It went surprisingly smoothly. Um, you know, like not surprisingly, students were very happy to have this different model in front of them. Uh, and it was primarily student-led, mm -hmm. meaning they, that we trained students to facilitate um, these restorative processes. There was a mix, you know, there was faculty and staff involved, but there was always a student, um, uh, you know, lead facilitator. And, um, and so it became uh, a really cool growth experience for students and a way for them to be involved in a, you know, in the community in a meaningful way. So we had a lot of student support. And I think on most campuses, that's really the key to success for any program. 
um, there there were people who uh, were skeptical. Uh, you know, certainly like our our campus safety department. You know, these are like a lot of campus safety departments are led by uh, retired police, and they have you know much more of a traditional law and order orientation things. Uh, and it took them, you know, it took them longer to embrace it, uh, but they did. Uh, and one of the ways that, um, you know, was compelling for them was that they never, they traditionally don't have a role in a conduct process. So campus police will investigate and file a report. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, and then it goes again, into like the black box and they don't know what happens. And so they usually assume nothing happens. Like, that their their good work is unrewarded because all those like softy liberal administrators are just gonna let the kid off and um, you know send them back to their residence hall. Uh, but we started involving those campus safety officers primarily as harmed parties, and they got to tell their stories in ways that they never got to. So they weren't serving as witnesses that would provide evidence fine student in violation they were just sharing what it was like uh, you know like i remember an early case that actually got their attention was that there were um there was a campus safety vehicle that was on an emergency call and they were trying to get to a campus apartment and there was a this was on a friday or saturday night and you know late and lots of students out without partying and there was a crowd of students in the road blocking the path uh for you know for them to get through and um they were really you know they were really amped up because they were trying to respond to an emergency but there was this crowd that was goofing around laughing not you know like ha ah, we're stopping campus safety vehicle from going you know camp campus police campo this they, students refer to them um and uh, two of the students climbed up on their car, you know, were sitting on the hood and they were just making a big joke of it. And, you know, they got through. Um, and uh, and so we did a restorative process and they got to share what like what was up for them, what what that incident was. They weren't getting to in time, mm-hmm. how serious that was and their frustration and their worry. And they didn't want to plow through the students. And they didn't have a good way to communicate to the students the urgency of the situation. And uh, it was interesting um, that the two students uh, who had climbed onto the hood, uh, one of the students chose not to participate in the restorative process, and the other did. And um, the one who did was really, you know, very remorseful, especially. Uh, when she heard what this situation was and you know it was really back to shame like really ashamed of herself for her role in this and um and they really got it and they accepted her apology and i i can't remember what the if there was a a plan or a, 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 um, something some restorative measures that were put in place um but that that was a very helpful moment for them and then interestingly we had a process that if you uh, refuse to engage in the in process you're you're essentially suspending yourself like you're um if you're unwilling to engage with the college they have to suspend you so you know it's like up to you like you can come to this thing or not but it, um 
And so they were very surprised that they themselves were interested in just having basically an apology from the student who showed up and a suspension for the student who didn't. And that, that messed with their heads because they're they're usually about equality, like, you know, equality before the law, like same crime, same sentence. Mm. And here you're getting very different outcomes for the same act, but because of the way the students were engaging in it so differently, and they started to recognize, wow, we can have influence on students in a very different way as a result of this. So um, even when we had some early resistance uh it was often overcome simply by engaging them in the process and i'll just add to that that another thing we did was um, invite our uh, district attorney to our restorative process uh, so that we could engage him in a conversation about what to do when students got arrested uh, downtown and um, could they go through our restorative process instead of being prosecuted and uh, we we were able to craft uh, an MOU with the uh, the DA's office that basically said if students successfully went through our restorative process, and he said at the time, you guys are doing way more than we would do with our sentences. Um, so yeah, we'll take yours over ours. Um, so he saw the value, and if they so if they engaged in our restorative process and successfully completed the terms. Um, they would dismiss, or, you know, they would basically dismiss the charges. Uh, so we're able to work with, you know, with the system and, in, in, you know, in some meaningful ways uh, early on. Yeah. I don't know if you sensed it when you talked about like, and then we brought campus security in. I was like, oh, and then like explaining that, like, not as witnesses, but as as or like as investigators but as like people who have been impacted like as people right um who have been impacted like that is something that like helped one the person who caused harm in any given situation like see the impact right like that that was important like community members have been impacted by your actions but two like having people who are um campus security in this case officers of the law in other cases like be included as individuals um who have been impacted not just like as the person representing like the badge and all of that um is a way that like we can help get quote unquote buy-in right um when people feel that sense of belonging to a community i thought that was really beautiful the other thing that i i really appreciated when you were talking about like the you know the involvement with the da's office i was like again like um and i i want to invite people like this was on like a slightly separate and different podcast um i did a crossover between the other podcasts that i ran for a while uh called diversity and inclusion revolution or reform with xavier ramey that episode and I can link it in the show notes for folks. Um, we talked about, you know, like reformist reforms or abolitionist reforms, right? Like, are we using reforms that are giving the system, are we using reforms to make the system more powerful or are we using reforms that will give um, control back to the community, right? And when you're addressing the DA's office and saying like, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to do this better than you. We're going to take this off of your plate and like return the the power decision-making and all that like to our community where we can actually support these, uh, these students in one, um, getting their needs met because when people cause harm, there are often needs that they have, but two, actually repairing the harm um, 
as opposed to like, you know, fine, probation, jail time, whatever it would have been on that end. Um, that, that's a really, really productive and generative thing. So just thanks for that story. And the, like, those were the things that like really stood out for me. I think, uh, you know, I, um, so shout out to uh, Tom Alina, who I uh, co-edited the book and who had helped start the program in Boulder. He told me a story, which I think is the first case, of, you know, restorative justice case on a college campus uh, that, you know, that he he did, um, you know, and it speaks to all of this. At the time, he was working for the New Jersey courts. I'm not sure what he was doing exactly, but he um, he had read an article by Howard Zare. This is the like, 1987 or something. Um, about, you know, he read an article about restorative justice and, um, and then he, a case came through of a student who, um, it was, uh, Montclair State University in New Jersey at the time. It's now the College of New Jersey. Um, and it was a, a football player, African American football player who had been in a drunk driving accident and, uh, his girlfriend and his best friend were killed in mm-hmm. the accident. He was driving. And um, so that was a simultaneously a criminal case and a campus case, you know, that they, the campus needs to decide, I mean, you know, the spending, expelling, what are they, what are they doing in response to this? And um, Tom called uh, the defense, I think it was the defense attorney, one of the defense attorneys. Uh, or, you know, for him and said, I just read this article about this thing called restorative justice, and I think it would be really good for this case. And the guy's like, well, what is it? And how do you do it? And he's like, no idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> but let's try and figure it out. And uh, and he ended up meeting with the parents of the, um, uh, you know, one of the kids who was killed. And, and basically the parents said, you know, it was really luck of the draw who was driving. They were all drunk and uh, they they wouldn't have wanted to see their friends go to prison over this. Like they would want them to take responsibility and, you know, basically live, you know, like three good lives, you know. Um, and, uh, and that process influenced uh, I think influenced the the criminal sentence, um, meaning it lightened it dramatically, and enabled the student to. I think the student was automatically expelled or something like that, but was able to um, become readmitted and complete his degree. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there are ways. Anyway, that's all to say there there are ways in which the um, the systems can work collaboratively and that we can uh, involve you know the harmed community in some really meaningful way uh so i think that's the first example of a of a college student case yeah yeah well i mean formally at least right when you and i before this call um before we started recording uh like what is the thing that we want to make sure that we talk about and right it's like so far we've been talking about all of the ways that like we've used like restorative paradigms to like resolve harm, resolve conflict, address um, hurt, bring people back into community 
to your point about you know trust being the thing um, that exists within homogeneous communities like Vermont, right? Um, making people like more willing to engage in like a process like this, right? The the students like the passengers in that car being his best friend and and his girlfriend, right? Those parents of those uh, young people are like way more likely to have empathy um, for for this person. The thing that we said that we wanted to talk about is like, how do we make sure that restorative justice is not just limited to that like repair of harm process? How do we make sure that we are building relationships, building containers, building trust proactively? So of course we are preventing more harm in the first place, but when harm happens, we're much more likely to be willing to engage in these processes with the people who have uh, been harmed and um, cause harm. You know, when um, restorative justice made the leap from, you know, in contemporary applications of restorative justice made the leap from it uh, just in the criminal legal system to educational systems, uh, primarily taking call schools, I, that was such a pivotal moment for this question because schools have been responsible for building learning communities and safe communities and caring for children making sure that they're um, learning not just you know the the lessons but learning life lessons uh, and schools are unfortunately schools are really the repositories for um, all social you know a lot of social services and trying to make up for um a lot of things that are happening in communities, you know, where kids come to school without breakfast or can't afford lunch or, you know, need, uh, need social work, need social workers on campus. And, you know, they have all kinds of needs. And so the recognition that schools aren't just places for academic learning, um, automatically pushes us into this question of how, how do we live together? How do we, uh, work together? And teachers have to do this every day in the classroom. They, the first thing they have to do is build uh, a container where learning can happen. And if it's chaos, learning can happen. And so they have to build relationships. They have to build, you know, or they can go really authoritarian, right? So you're in trouble <laughs> for, you know, whatever, you know, clo closing your eyes or opening your eyes or turning to your left or turning to your right, you know. Um, so restorative justice in schools is really taking up that question, how? And so that's why circle of practice has become so important in school communities is that they just create this space for um, uh, people to make the transition from their external lives to the classroom to see each other, appreciate each other, solve problems together. Um, and then, as you said, uh, when bigger problems happen, have a methodology in place that, uh, you know, it's always like a marker of success when it's the students who say, we need a circle, right? We, yeah. They're looking for um, this method that they're familiar with to resolve issues that they, they feel like they can handle all by themselves. You're absolutely right. You can't really be successful with restorative justice if it's only reactive. And in uh, criminal justice, it's, you know, that system is designed to be reactive after the fact. And so it's inherently limited. And our work 
um, in, in schools should help us in you know help inform how these systems could change you know for the better. Like we see some of that even just the changes with policing where we have uh, mental health um, workers doing early intervention, being first responders as opposed to cops. Um, you know, is a recognition that we need to engage in very different ways and we need to have people who can build trust and uh, not just in gender resistance. Yeah. In the work that you were doing at Skidmore, um, how did you help like ingratiate those values, those practices beyond just like, and this is what we do in student conduct? You know, we did like, for example, for years uh, and worked with another really skilled uh, restorative practitioner uh, Duke Fisher, um, we we work with our orientation program, and we at Skidmore had a free orientation program that about half the incoming first year students would participate in, and that was like a few days of basically fun before the semester started, so that students could acclimate and make friends before they have to get deluged with homework. And um, uh, Skidmore has first-year seminars. Mm -hmm. and faculty all teach these first-year seminars. And along with those seminars, faculty are able to select a peer mentor who is an, an old, or a more senior student who um, becomes a peer mentor for the first-year students and uh, works with the faculty member alongside in that seminar and does a lot of things outside the classroom as well. And those peer mentors every year were selected through fairly traditional means, meaning they're selected because of their very high academic success and mm -hmm. their very high social involvement. So they're, you know, class presidents and student, you know, leaders on campus. So they're very extroverted, socially confident, uh, academically successful. And we did these amazing circles with those peer mentors, preparing them for the arrival of students. And one of the questions in circle round questions that we asked was, um, given what we've learned about the challenges that students arrive on campus with, whether it's like eating disorder or the parents just divorced or they've got financial uh, panic or they have a learning disability or, you know, like, all the many things that could derail someone from succeeding as they transition to college. Um, we did a circle and said, how can you be a resource uh, for each other as other peer mentors? Um, and around the circle, all these students would say all of those things. You know, I'm a child of divorce. I come from a home, you know, with domestic violence. My I'm a DACA student and you know, my, my parents are on the edge of being deported. And it was just so striking to me that those students who we thought of as our, you know, our top students who live perfect lives, there's no such thing. And that they saw how their own stories would be a, um, you know, like a, a touchstone for other peer mentors who could lean on them and say, like, I've got a student with this situation and I know you have experience with this. Can you help me? Would you be willing to have a conversation with this student, you know? And um, it was just a surprise to me that we're 
We don't know the depth of the resources available, and we can reframe what we would normally think of as, um, you know, people's flaws, uh, and instead they become incredible opportunities uh, for connection uh, and influence. In that relationship building to start, like getting people to share their stories, getting people to know that like, hey, me too, right? Like that is such a powerful, it's such a powerful way to prevent crises from happening, right? Like these problems exist, but if I have someone who I know I can like go to, to help walk me through this or like walk with me as I go through this, or who's been through a similar situation and can offer me guidance, like that can prevent so many crises, right? Where people like are floundering and don't know how to access those things and like try to get those needs met in ways that are destructive to themselves and sometimes maybe others. That's beautiful. I'm curious, like if that was like intentionally like you talked about like the way that it was in orientation like how were you like following up on that throughout the rest of the year in the way that the uh this program was structured i think ideally you it would start with orientation and yeah. I'm, I'm super happy with usd uh where we do a lot of circles for incoming students um at the beginning uh and some other campuses are doing that too um that would be followed by, you know, restored practices in other sub-communities so that you're training. There are so many sub-communities within a campus community. Of course. Know, life or fraternities and sororities or athletic teams or, you know, multicultural clubs of various sorts. Uh, and so if you have places that are, you know, basically safety zones for students, uh, and those are places where they know they can tell their stories and have some sense of privacy and uh, social support. Um, you know, that's how you build trusting communities. We had uh, um, one of uh, my uh, master's students who graduated this past spring, her name is Monique Appel, uh, works in our um, psychology and neuroscience department. And mm -hmm. she hosted a series of circles for faculty on um, their white identity and to build comfort in talking about issues of race in their classes and how to rethink their syllabi so that they can um, uh, be more inclusive in, you know, in the framing of things. And it's just creating spaces that people uh, really do appreciate um that often gets them over you know over an edge where there was hesitation or resistance or unwillingness and um you know with that support we we can just we can have better classrooms we can have better communities whether they're sort you know sororities or um you know academic clubs whatever it may be uh there there's a lot happening um so I'm interested in also the academic side too. Like why these are these are questions that circle around in my head all the time. Like why do attorneys have to learn about restorative justice? You know, once they're deep into the field, why isn't it taught in law school? Why do teachers have to learn about restorative justice once they're in classrooms and not in teacher education or social workers? You know, or uh, criminal justice students. Um, so how, how do we get this embedded within, you know, the curriculum? 
So when we think about a campus community, we're really thinking about what people are studying, how they're studying it, like circles in the classroom, um, and then their lives in their community, whether it's students and how they're living on campus or faculty and faculty meetings or staff, you know, and union meetings. Uh, there are all kinds of ways in which we're living our lives on campus. And I would say that at first, I kind of, it was a fluke that I got involved in restorative practices on campus. But ultimately, it was a realization that for me, um, it was part of my, you know, like live, living restoratively in the Howard's Air kind of way. Um, like I live on campus. I mean, I come to campus every day. I think about campus life all the time as a faculty member. Um, I'm in, you know, classrooms with students. I'm in relationship with campus people. So could that be a restorative community for me or as a restorative justice um, academic, um, you know, can I align the, my, my topical interest area uh, with the, the, my campus community? Yeah, I'm curious, well, a, a number of things. One, like, you know, you've made the migration across the country. We made that migration at the same time uh, from uh, from east to west. We're both in California. You're at the University of San Diego, not to be confused with UC San Diego. I've made that mistake a couple of times. Um, but, um, you know, you're, you're a professor, you're heading up this center, um, and there are infinite applications to where restorative justice, restorative practices, these circle ways of being can be quote unquote implemented in campus life. Um, I want to touch on like the work of the center in a second, but like, I'm curious, like as a professor, right? Like of leadership studies <laughs> um, and you can explain what that means. Cause I just did heavy air quotes. Um, like, how are you bringing that into the academics of how you're preparing your students to, to navigate the leadership world? <laughs> Well, I'm a sociologist by training, and I had no idea what leadership studies was when I first arrived, frankly. And I think we're all sort of figuring it out because it's not a traditional discipline, mm -hmm. which means it's interdisciplinary by nature. And so you have, uh, you know, you have sociologists and you have economists and you have psychologists, you know, all kinds of folks with different backgrounds um, making sense of what leadership is all about. And we have a fairly critical, uh, in the good sense of the word, take on leadership studies. That is, we're, we're primarily focused on grassroots leadership or leadership that is, you know, non-hierarchical in its focus and leadership of nonprofits and leadership of educational systems. Uh, so, you know, how do you lead well? And so for me, two questions keep coming up that are basic restorative questions. Like for a leader, um, you know, can you lead in a way that builds community, that that helps an organization or a team or a, or a, a school, um, you know, work well and thrive together? So that's a fundamental restorative practice, right? Circles for community building. And then as a leader, um, how can you uh, effectively respond to conflict and harm? 
uh, those are standard responsibilities of leaders is responding, uh, you know, successfully to that. And we have answers to that in restorative justice. So leadership studies for me is just another way of talking about restorative justice. Uh, but that framing is uh, uh, helpful to me because I think largely in the restorative justice movement, we're good at training facilitators, but not other aspects of um, restorative justice leadership, like um, building a program, changing policy, lobbying, advocacy, evaluation, assessment, you know, like um, all these things that keep a restorative organization going uh, are not the things we teach in a, in a skill building training. Mm. And in fact, the people that are drawn to restorative justice are probably natural facilitators and may not have skills in these other areas and really need support. So we, that's what we're doing here um, at USD, our, kind of our main, we offer training, um, but we recognize that training is insufficient and that our trainings were and are still limited by two things. One is that when you offer a skill building training, even if it's a multi-day, you know, three, four days, um, people come to the training without basic knowledge of restorative justice, and you have to spend a lot of time teaching about restorative justice. And then you also bump into people's resistance or um, skepticism. And so you just have to spend time um, overcoming this or working with it. Uh, and so that just takes away from skill building. And then on the other side of the training, People leave the training, and even if they have a fabulous, life-changing experience, um, they go back to wherever they're from, and that doesn't mean they can immediately implement or will have the opportunities to use those skills they just developed. And so um, we designed our uh, certificate program as a three-course sequence to address those, like a what is restorative justice course, that's the academic one, and then a skill building intensive to learn how, and then a practicum that's designed to support new apprentice RJ facilitators in um, uh, developing their skills and becoming more confident, as well as becoming leaders and either sustaining or building uh, new programs in whatever sector that they're in. And we get a lot of people from different systems. So you get some from like you know, from a hospital or from a nonprofit organization or probation or a elementary school. So they're going, they're, they're, they're coming from a variety of contexts and they go back and they often have the same question of like, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. I need help and I need help from people who are in similar contexts, of, you know, with me. And so we have a network of uh, mentors who help them who have particular expertise in whatever area they're um, they're trying to work in. So we have um, a certificate program, and that raises all kinds of questions about professionalization and um, elitism, and we're sensitive to that. And it's a it's a true conundrum uh, because we're trying not to be um, exclusive. And we also recognize that there's a lot to learn and that uh, people are hungry for information and hungry for support. 
Uh, and so we're, we're as best we can trying to be sensitive to that. And uh, so we offer a lot of that. Our solution is we spend a lot of time creating a strong scholarship program. Uh, and so we offer a lot of scholarships for people to participate in our certificate program. Mm-hmm. And our program is for graduate students here at USD. Uh, and they can do the certificate as part of their degrees, master's or PhD program, um, or uh, people can do it through our professional certificate. So they're not affiliated with USD, but they're, like I said, a teacher or a probation officer or an assistant district attorney or whomever, um, and they want the skills, and so they can they can do our program as well. We get, of course, because we're known for higher education, we get a lot of administrators and faculty from across the country who want to bring sort of justice to their campuses. Yeah, uh, there, there's no doubt that there is like so much to learn for somebody who is like trying to step into this work. And so much of the things to learn are like readily available to you with like Google searches or at least like academic journal searches or like on YouTube videos or on podcasts. What is also like so crucial to learning this way of being right is that practice of one sitting in space with people being able to feel what that feels like to both hold space and be held in that space and then like the practice of facilitation you talked about the mentorship aspect of all of this what does that look like well it begins with um with our second course well really it's throughout so in our first course we have a lot of interviews with different practitioners mm-hmm. and ideas that you should through that course see people that resonate with you um so it's a it's a very diverse group in in every sense of that word in terms of like the kind of work they do and where they come from their perspective their backgrounds and the second course the training team tries to draw from uh, you know, a, a, a variety of practitioners who have skills, but it really is in the third course where we have, um, we, we develop communities of practice so that K-12 people get clustered together or people mm-hmm. who are specifically interested in RJ for sexual harm get clustered together. And so they're a community of practice, meaning they're studying and learning and practicing together and they're learning. We get people like they're not babies, you know, these are advanced, skilled, wise people who have a lot to offer, even if they're new to particulars of restorative justice. Uh, And, um, and so they're learning from each other and supporting each other and bouncing ideas off each other. And then they're um, they're connected with a mentor who is got a lot of experience in that particular area. So if it's sexual harm, Title IX on college campuses, we'll have somebody who's built a program, done a lot of cases, who is working with that particular group, and that they can um, uh, they can get ongoing support from as they as you know as they try things out or as they try to. Um, gain traction on their campus or whatever the context is. Yeah. If people want to learn more about this program, all that you have going on at USD, University of San Diego, uh, we'll link it in the show notes, but where should they go? What they sh- what should they look out for? 
Yeah, just go to our website. That's the easiest. So it's sandiego.edu slash RJ. It's very simple, but yeah, please put it in the show notes. Um, I think you can Google us and, and our website shares what trainings we're offering and you know, more about the certificate program. We're hoping to build a master's uh, program in restorative justice. Uh, and we also have PhD students who are um, that's what, uh, you know, because RJ is not a discipline, if somebody wants to get a PhD and focus on RJ, they go, where do we go? You know, so here you go find somebody like me who knows about RJ and um, can support them. Uh, so we have PhD students who are doing their dissertations on short justice, which is really fantastic. Well, thank you so much for everything that you shared. We'll be back with the questions that everybody answers when they come on this restorative justice life right after this. As we've heard, so much about doing this work is the practice, but it's always great to have some fundamentals. So if you want to tap into the intro to RJ, racial and restorative justice course, the link to engage in that learning is in the show notes. If you want to go deeper in your practice or explore other aspects of doing work that is restorative and building a better world for future generations, we have learning opportunities for you too, both in courses and live workshops. If you're in a community, school, or organization that would benefit from this learning, we're more than happy to get on a call with you to talk about how we can support this work in your context. In addition to rating, reviewing, and subscribing to this podcast, amplification of this work also means sharing these learning opportunities with others. So if there are individuals in your life who you want to really know this work in a deep and meaningful way, and you've found the things that you've heard here on this podcast really relevant, please send them our way. It's how we literally amplify the work. Now back to the questions that everybody answers when they come on these airwaves. All right, we've talked around this, David, um, but I don't think we've gotten an answer in your own words define restorative justice oh i you know restorative justice is um you know as a way to prevent and respond to harm and i think both that prevention aspect needs to get built in through some kind of collaborative process that really puts the people most impacted at the center uh, and be a process in which they're able to design or customize a response that best meets their needs. So I think that, that that's the that's the, as close as I can get. It doesn't really speak to you know individual versus structural harm, but that's part of it, right? Recognizing that harm occurs on many levels and that restorative justice is a philosophy that takes harm seriously. And um and enables people to think about harms so they can be um, um, uh, redefined as a set of needs and then as a set of solutions to address those needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you've been doing this work, what has been an oh shit moment and what have you learned from it? Often um, it's like, a mistake or something that like you wish you'd done differently. Uh, people have also taken this as like an aw shit. Yeah, I did that and it was great. Um, so whichever way do you want to answer that? Um, so you're asking for an an oh shit moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I think like a, a good example is um, you know the challenge of uh, representing restorative justice accurately. So we could think about the indigenous roots and recognize that's part of the story, right? Indigenous part of it, religious roots, Mennonite, you know, how are their Mennonite roots or 
Vermont, you know, shires and um, uh, civic engagement as a, you know a root story. Um, so, for example, I often would think about Barry Stewart as mm -hmm. a you know a judge and uh, a leader in developing sentencing circles originally as they were called and you know, working with Kate Branis. Uh, and and somebody at a training once said, can you name any of the indigenous people that developed this program with Barry Stewart? Um, and that was an oh shit moment for me mm -hmm. because I was definitely centering the white guy and didn't really have a story or had not taken the time to try to learn more about that context. And that's you know, and that was, it made sense, right? Like, I, it made sense for all the, like, you know, white supremacy and all that kind of stuff. But also because I'm a white guy and I was like, I could, you know, like, wouldn't it be cool if I could do something like Barry Stewart? Like, I could identify with him in ways that I couldn't, you know, like, I can't be an indigenous leader. Um, so I, I, my brain didn't go there. So I think just those moments where recognizing my own bias and, and how that translates into the way I teach about restorative justice is um, those are important moments. It begs the question now: Can you name a, an indigenous leader who helped co-construct uh, those those processes with Barry Stewart? Yeah, there. Well, there. You know, there's um, a number of them. He, he, of course, wrote a book with Mark Wedge, who's you know was central. And then there's uh, these two brothers, uh, the Gats and Bees, and others. So um, I don't know the whole. I, I mean, like stuff's not written down. Yeah. So I, you know, beyond that, um, I don't know. But you know, like there are some cool stories to um, pay close attention to, like. Um, Rupert Ross's book, Returning to Teachings about Hollow mm -hmm. Water, I think is a really good one. He's not an indigenous person, but um, I think that's a that's a really good one. My um, former PhD student, who's now a professor at Cal State Long Beach, TJ Reed, uh, uh, wrote a really good article about circle practices from an in indigenous. Uh, like the indigenous history of circle practices, basically. Um, it's kind of a review article. Um, mm. Put that in the show notes too. Yeah. That would be cool. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it speaks to not just like, oh, David didn't know, right? But like the the way that um, indigenous folks have continued to be erased, like both in the way that this is documented and in the way that like we who have been socialized in Western context, and I'll include myself in this, right? Like learn or document learning, right? Um, and there are infinite ways for us to continue to push back on those and continue to name elders and those who have carried the work forward. Um, this question is difficult in a different way. Um, you get to sit in circle with four people, dead or alive. Who are they? And what is the question you ask the circle? Yeah, jeepers. Well, we did start this whole conversation with um, Gandhi and and uh, Martin Luther King. Like that would be pretty amazing. Yeah. So that's two, right? I have two more. Mm -hmm. Seems like uh, it would be like some, you know, like I think I would want to pick some of these unnamed 
uh, leaders, you know, like the ones who weren't listed and aren't the go-tos like Gandhi and King, you know, like they're easy references. And so maybe it would be, you know, I so I don't have the names, but mm -hmm. you know, it would be like that, you know, that grandmother who um, knows restorative justice in her bones and, uh, but, you know, hasn't put pen to page because of their circumstances. And then the question, I'm interested in those, like, when did you know? When was it right for you? Because if you read, like, the biography of Gandhi, you know, he didn't start out as Gandhi. And, you know, there those, I'm interested in those pivotal moments where he was like, he was seeing the in, injustice. He was in South Africa and he was, he was being a lawyer fighting, you know, in an adversarial way. And so I want to know about those moments when he's like, oh, this doesn't work. And I think there's something better. Uh, so that's what I would want to hear. Yeah. Maybe I didn't do a good job in asking this at the beginning, but what was that moment for you? I, you know, there's a, there are many, mm -hmm. um, there are many, but there was a, there, a, one important moment for me was back when we were recording videos in Vermont and I was mm -hmm. working the camera and I heard a story, woman's name was Melissa and she was on probation for um, basically punching her mother-in-law in the face and breaking her nose. And um, the, the conversation prematurely went to apology like i think you should apologize and she was being very honest and saying yeah let, let me tell you a little bit about her and why i punched her and um you could see just how locked into the conflict she was and that she was not in an apologetic frame of mind mm -hmm. and there was a, um, a community member in the circle who said um you know, like, let me see if I understand what happened here. So you were at home and you have, uh, you have a child, you have a little boy, he's three, like three years old. And she's like, yeah. And, um, and he was there. Yeah. So basically he got to witness an act of violence by his mother, uh, toward his grandmother. Is that right? And she just broke. I mean, that was the moment for her when she was able to step out of her own conflict and kind of fixed gaze on how the, the mother-in-law to what this would have been like for her child and what he was, what lesson he was going to take away from this. And then she like turned it all around in that moment. Like, oh my God, I have to have her over to dinner tonight. Like it was... Mm -hmm. It was such an amazing facilitator move that it made me think this is, th there's something really profound about this. If you're able to engage people in a way that really connects to who they are as people and what they, who they want to be in the world, you know, we can really see change. And it was not standard because the, the normal method is to just like, um, like develop empathy for the harmed party. And that wasn't working. And so she had to do this role-taking thing shift 
from the harm party to, you know, this other harm party that was unnamed so far, their child. Uh, and I thought that was so amazing. I was like, okay, this is not what, this is not what the courts do. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's such a cool story. I'm thinking like the amount of quote unquote reps that you need to get in as a facilitator, like to, to have that move, like one, sometimes people can think of that thing in the moment. And often if you're present, um, and really some of that was just like reflective listening and summary. Right. Um, but like, sometimes like that saying the exact thing and people like, Oh my gosh, how did you pull that out of whatever? It was like, you know, it's just being in the practice, being present and listening. That was so great. So I think I have two more questions. Um, one requires a little bit of homework from you. Who's someone that I should have on the podcast? And you have to help me get them on. Uh, so two people come to mind. Uh, both are recent PhDs from our program. And one is a person I mentioned earlier, TJ Reed, uh, who is now a uh, professor of Native American studies at Cal State Long Beach mm-hmm. and um, is doing really uh, powerful restorative work both on campus and off. Uh, and another person is uh, Pedro Flores, who just finished his PhD this spring and is bringing restorative justice to healthcare. Is you know is is really pioneering how we can transform our healthcare system, which is incredibly hierarchical and toxic, and causing arm all the way down the line from, you know, those that are high on the hierarchy down to other people down to, you know, students and then ultimately the patients. So I think, you know, in terms of newcomers to the field, it would be great to talk to them. Good to know. Um, I've already located them on LinkedIn, but the introduction um, is always helpful. So we're looking forward to having them on these airwaves soon. Um, and finally, we've mentioned it before, um, the, the work at the center, but um, you can expand the call beyond this. How can people support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported? You know, I think, like, I don't know if it's just me, uh, but I think that in um nonprofit world in general there's there tends to be a scarcity mindset which means that we compete for resources uh and you know if one one organization gets a grant that means another one didn't and uh and i if we can if we collectively in the restorative justice community could do that differently and be mutually supportive i think that's neat i mean we're small enough and you know, under-resourced enough that we, there's plenty of room for everyone for growth. So let's figure out how to work together. That's a call towards um, the restorative justice community at large. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it pertains to, you know, you started with asking like, what would be helpful? Oh yeah. I have a center for restorative justice at USD and there are other centers for restorative justice on other campuses. And we're, having conversations about, you know, how can the Center for, um, you know, Restorative Justice and Peacemaking in University of Minnesota uh, collaborate? How can the Center for Urban Resilience at Loyola Marymount collaborate? How can the Center Amherst College Center for Restorative Practices collaborate? Like we, we don't need to be carving out our separate niches and saying mine's better than yours or I got this grant and you didn't. Um, you know, like, what can we do together 
So in my world, we can create restorative universities, you know, across, you know, the country, as opposed to just being like the only community in town. Mm, Got you. So that makes sense. Again, like the way that this is typically framed and like, I think it is applicable. Like that's so applicable and I want to honor that. And so we'll leave that in. Is there something that like the person who's like listening to this, who's an individual like teacher and, and like that might be like call to action, like, Hey, the website, check out our, check out our resources. Um, because like what you, what you just spoke to is like speaking to like a, like a very specific group of people. Like, is there something like that's more universal that people can like call to action and support you? And there might not be beyond like check out the website, but like, if you could just like restate that, reaffirm that, that'd be great. Um, well, I'll, you know, I'll say that, um, restorative justice in higher education mm-hmm. is a small and growing area. And um, we have, some, you know, some resources and opportunities on our website. So if people are interested in learning or about or applying um, restorative justice on campuses, uh, they can find out more from us or if they want to learn more about restorative justice or do a deep dive. Um, you know, they can participate in one of our programs. We'd love to, we'd love to have all of you. Beautiful. So all the ways to collaborate, connect, um, go through the sandiego.edu slash RJ. We'll have that linked in the, in the show notes, David, thank you so much for your wisdom, your stories, and of course your time to uh, share how folks can continue living this restorative justice life. Um, We'll be back with another conversation of somebody living these values, these ways, these philosophies next week. Until then, take care. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. Or if you're old school, tell a friend. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, signing up for a community gathering, workshop, or course. So many options. Links to everything in the show notes. Or on our website, amplifyrj.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.